Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, three parties, two deputy prime ministers, one new coalition government. What we have achieved together I think is historic because it is in fact the very first time in New Zealand's MMP history that we have had a three-party coalition government with all parties represented in Cabinet. Shortly we will hear from Nationals Nicola Willis and ACT leader David Seymour and then 10 months since Cyclone Gabrielle smashed the East Coast. Tired Rafferty has two new MPs fighting to keep it on the map. We need action. You know, we, we've had support. You know, we can't say we haven't had support. But what we really need is to be the designers before the deliverers. We will have that story for you shortly, but first up this morning, it has been a procession in Port Waikato, with Nationals' Andrew Bailey winning the by-election in a landslide. On the preliminary results announced last night, Bailey had 76% of the 18,000 votes cast, a long way ahead of the 15% of votes won by New Zealand First's Casey Costello. Those were the only two candidates standing from parties in Parliament, and no other candidates made it into double digits. Bailey's win means that he will resign as a list MP and take up the electorate seat instead, with Parliament increasing in size to 123 MPs as a result. Nationals' Nancy Liu, there she is, will come in as the replacement list MP. National leader Christopher Luxon is set to be sworn in by the Governor-General as New Zealand's next Prime Minister, after National Act and New Zealand First agreed on coalition deals to form the next government. All up, it was 41 days between Election Day and Friday, exactly three weeks between the final results and the two coalition deals. I can't give you a deadline. What I can tell you is that there is goodwill and good faith uh, from all three political party leaders. Inevitably, we're going to have to be in the same room. They're not easy, they're complex. It's about, after all, a country. I've done a lot of negotiations, whether it's been, you know, involved in mergers and acquisitions. Winston Peters didn't turn up in Wellington yesterday. The other leaders flying back to Auckland. We're making progress. Well, we're taking our time to go through all the details. We're getting close. They're progressing well. Uh, we're getting closer. Christopher Luxon revealing to media they'd reached a deal. Well, yes, but... But didn't give his new mates the heads up. I suspect Chris got up and had one too many wheat picks, but I can understand his enthusiasm. There's just a couple more steps to go. I want to find out from him that what you said he said was actually true. And I found out it wasn't. All three of us are desperate to get it sorted. I've just literally run out of clothes, so I've got to go home. <laughs> this is Christopher Luxon's shirt. I borrowed it from him. Firstly, I just want to speak directly to the New Zealand people and I want to say thank you to all of you for your patience and your understanding and the wait for this government to be formed over the last 20 days. So, after the coalition deal was signed on Friday, all that is left now is for the new government to be sworn in. For the new finance minister, though, it means a very, very, very busy few weeks ahead. Nicola Willis is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good morning. You have just had your first briefing from Treasury. What did yeah. they say? Look, they said there's some real pressure on New Zealand's finances and some challenges ahead for our economy. 
It's fair to say that the outgoing government has left us with some nasty surprises. Uh, there are some fiscal risks that are pretty significant that we're going to have to work hard to manage. Fiscal risks being things that could cost the government a lot of money if we don't manage them well. Uh, there's also uh, some fiscal cliffs, that is, programmes that are currently ongoing that the government hasn't budgeted to keep funding in the future. So we'll need to assess each of those too. Where are those surprises specifically? Well, what I've had for the first time is an opportunity to be briefed on some of the areas of spending that have become blowouts uh, and to understand just the beginning of that. So my task over the coming week or two is to dig into that into deeper detail and I'll work to be as transparent as I can with New Zealanders about what those risks are and what the opportunities are for us to tighten things up. So, so how much is this going to affect your bottom line? If you, if you look at um, expenditure projections, revenue projections at the moment. Mm. Are we talking hundreds of millions of dollars? Are we talking billions of dollars here? Well, we've got a great opportunity to share that information with New Zealand at the half-year economic and fiscal update. We're going to turn that into a mini-budget. Great opportunity right now as well, Nick. Uh, well, we're going to turn that into a mini-budget, <laughs> and that will be before Christmas. And right. at that time, we will open up the books, we'll share with New Zealanders what we're seeing, what the projections are for the economy over the next few years, and our response to those conditions. Okay. But our priorities will be as a government. Okay, so what else are you going to be putting in that mini budget? Because you only have a very small window to get that sorted. Well, we'll work very hard over the next couple of weeks to see if there are some savings and reprioritisations mm. we can get into that initial. Uh, mini budget. I'm conscious that time is very limited. We want to make sure we're taking proper advice, that we're being prudent, that we're being careful. So it'll be necessarily limited. Mm. Emphasis on the word mini. When you think of those uh, surprises, is there any specific area that really took you back that stands out as something that you weren't necessarily expecting on the information you had prior to your briefing? Yes, and I will have more to say about that in the coming days. Okay. Let's talk about some of the details in those coalition uh, agreements. So one thing that stuck out to me is that uh, you are now set to be introducing interest deductibility for residential landlords faster than you had previously planned. How's mm. that going to impact your revenue in the, in the next year or two? So National had campaigned on interest deductibility uh, staying at 50% uh, from April next year. Uh, we've agreed in the coalition agreement with ACT to lift that to 60% and then the year after that we'd campaigned on a 75% mm. deductibility. We've agreed with ACT to make that 80% deductibility. So that will have some impact uh, in terms of revenue. Again, I'm yet to take detailed advice on exactly what those costings are, but we think they're manageable within our broader fiscal plan, which has significant buffers in it. Okay, so the foreign buyer's tax is gone mm. on your numbers, which we don't need to re-examine. Uh, that means you miss out on more than $700 million a year. So to pay for the revenue shortage, uh, you are going to scrap changes to working for families. You're going to review an app tax, which you specifically campaigned against. You're going to scrap the smoke-free New Zealand changes, which will improve your excise revenue. Will you still need to borrow in order to fund those cuts? No, because what we did in our fiscal plan, and it's really important to remember this, is that we left significant buffers over the forecast period. That is... We put together a plan based on operating allowances of extra spending, mm. but we didn't actually allocate all of that spending. We left buffers of unspent money. So in approaching our tax plan, all of the three parties in the coalition know 
that we need to reduce the cost of living, know that New Zealanders need to keep more of what they earn. We want to deliver them tax reduction, but do that in a way that maintains New Zealand's fiscal and economic strength. Scrapping the smoke-free changes will bring in more taxes because more people will be smoking. Do you accept it will also mean more people will die? Well, I just want to take you back a step because the logic for the smoke-free changes is not about tax revenue. The logic from both ACT and New Zealand First when they came to the negotiating table was their concern that changes planned for the future to those laws would have a couple of uh, nasty side effects. One, they were concerned about the emergence of a big black market for tobacco, unregulated, untaxed. Mm. Second, they were concerned that by vastly reducing the number of retail outlets to around 600, that we could see a huge increase in retail crime, ram raids, people putting, being put in danger. So their concerns were around the regulation. Mm. Um, I'd invite you, I think you've got David on the show later, to talk more about uh, where they're coming from on that. And what we've agreed in the coalition agreements is uh, not to proceed with the further changes that the government mm. uh, was planning. That doesn't, that doesn't go to my question, though. Do you accept that scrapping those changes will mean more people will die? Well, I have not seen advice or analysis of that, so I'm not prepared to give you an answer. They, they studied the, the potential changes before they were introduced, did modelling around the numbers. At the moment, 5,000 people a year die from smoking-related disease in New Zealand. And, and the numbers released before these changes were introduced suggested that they would save about 8,000 lives by the year 2040. Well, there is an ongoing commitment from this government to reduce the number of people smoking, uh, to stop people smoking in the first place, mm. to reduce the harm from smoking, to support people to quit. Mm. Uh, and you will see that in the way that Dr Shane Reti uh, goes about uh, his health leadership. Uh, look, one of the things that has dropped smoking rates significantly in recent years uh, is that people have chosen to take up vaping instead, mm. uh, which obviously I don't want my 13-year-old taking up vaping, so be very clear about that. But equally, for people who were uh, using a much more harmful product, that has helped them with Do you stopping have any smoking. moral reservations about, about these changes? Well, I would be really worried if we were going backwards from where the law currently is. And as you know, the law currently restricts access mm. for minors. It um, makes smokes very expensive so that they are hard to uh, obtain. There are significant health warnings mm. in shops. Uh, access to those products is pretty restricted. But these next steps were, were world-leading. Well, they haven't been done before, and therefore mm. there is no proof or evidence that they would have had the effects that were promised. OK, so no moral reservations. Well, as I've said to you, uh, morally, mm. I want fewer people smoking. Okay. And I think that we need to keep that goal in mind. You called the most recent iteration of the PGF a big money hose of taxpayer cash sloshing all around. Mm. Uh, you've agreed to a $1.2 billion regional infrastructure fund. So explain to us how that's going to be different. Well, the first thing is we're looking at capital funding. So what that means is funding for long-term infrastructure assets that are designed to be there for decades into the future and that create an asset on the Crown's balance sheet. So mm. these are long-held things. The second thing is I think we can learn lessons from the PGF to ensure that we've got really good accountability mechanisms 
that before we agree to fund projects, we know they can be delivered, uh, and to ensure that they are delivering the results uh, that were promised. What, so what were your concerns all, with accountability under the PGF? Well, the Auditor-General had a look at the yeah. PGF and it was clear that because it was uh, often set up in quite a hurry, uh, that there weren't necessarily those processes in place to ensure that projects were fun that were funded were delivering the things that were promised. Mm. So will it be just Shane Jones that has oversight when it comes to ministerial oversight of this fund or will you have input there as well? Well, the Minister of Infrastructure is Chris Bishop. I'd expect him to be working alongside Shane Jones and I'd expect to be part of that as well. Will capital projects that benefit the racing industry be eligible? Uh, well, obviously, Cabinet has not even discussed or considered criteria, but what I'd be expecting is regional projects, roads uh, and the like. OK. Uh, so, <coughs> so, for example, uh, a synthetic racetrack in Christchurch, I think, won $10.5 million under the initial iteration of the PGF. Would something like that, in your expectation, as per the deal, be eligible for this funding? Well, for that to meet the test for Crown Capital funding, it would have to be an asset that the Crown would have an ownership stake uh, in for some time. So that would seem unlikely at first glance, but as I say, we haven't even set up criteria yet, Jack. Under New Zealand First's coalition deal, there is a commitment to increase funding for IRD tax audits, to urgently expand IRD tax audit capacity. How much? We haven't decided that yet. We'll be taking advice on it. Um, I really liked this suggestion from New Zealand First, which is that they have looked around the world and seen that where countries have put more money into their auditing capability, they've actually been able to uncover a lot of revenue. This is about making sure that people pay the tax they owe. It's about fairness. Uh, and if we can beef up our auditing function in New Zealand to ensure that happens, that's a great thing. Is it going to be targeted at any one group in particular? Uh, we haven't had a discussion about that yet. Um, my goal would be to target it at where we think there is the most revenue being lost right now because every dollar that people are avoiding mm. in tax that they should be paying is a dollar that doesn't go towards our schools, our hospitals, tax mm. relief for Kiwis. So, so, so what group is that right now? Where do you think that is right now? I, I don't have a view on that, Jack, but we will be taking advice on that. I'm sure that the Inland Revenue Department have some ideas about if only we had a few more resources and a few more auditors, this is where we'd target mm. them. So we'll be asking them for that advice. Will it be informed at all by David Parker's study into high net wealth individuals? Uh, I'm not sure that there is any correlation between those two things. Okay. Um, talk to us about your role as Associate Climate Minister. Well, I'm really delighted to have that role. I view climate change as the most significant environmental challenge of our age, but also a significant mm. economic challenge. It requires us to reform our economy, to get carbon out of it, uh, and to prepare for a growing number of weather-related risks. So there are massive financial and economic implications of how New Zealand responds to climate change. At the same time, in Simon Watts, our climate change minister, we have someone extremely astute, wise, very focused on those challenges. He'll do a great job. But by me being there as associate, I can ensure that climate change is at the cabinet table, at the top of the cabinet table, and being thought about across the decisions so we are making. So why not have the, the climate change minister in cabinet? Well, there's only 20 seats at the Cabinet table, only 14 of them are being filled important, by national yeah, ministers. Sure, but if it's as important and critical as you say it is, as an issue. Well, it is a critical issue, it is an important issue, and as James Shaw demonstrated, it's a portfolio that can be led effectively mm. outside Cabinet. James Shaw is from the Green Party, of course. Yes, he is, and Simon Watts is from the National Party. He'll approach mm. climate change differently, I'm sure, and he'll do a great job. So you think James Shaw was effective as climate change minister? Uh, I think he knew his stuff. Um, looking into the long term, 
It's interesting, there, there is no rise in the retirement age, and I know that it's a very long-term thing, mm. but it does mean in the future the New Zealand government will have to spend significantly more on superannuation. To what degree do issues like that influence the decisions you are likely to make in the coming weeks? Well, I think one of the best pieces of advice I've had in recent days is when you become a new minister, you have a rush of urgent decisions coming at you, but always take the time to think about the long term. Mm -hmm. And I want to be a finance minister that does that. Alongside this portfolio, I have the social investment portfolio. And ultimately what that's about is saying, what are the things that the government could invest in differently earlier in people's lives or in different ways that would prevent their lives going off the rails in the longer run or prevent them fulfilling their potential? Mm. How can we be more clever about the dollars we put in to get a longer term return? A longer return in terms of human potential, but also actually reducing the cost to the state. Because when people do badly, when families do badly, when communities do badly, that comes at a cost to us all. Mm. How is that going to differ from Louise Upston's work? Well, Louise Upston is the Social Development Minister, so she will be overseeing New Zealand's social security framework, our welfare system, the support we give people uh, when they're not in work. Uh, part of her work will be taking a social investment approach to mm. see what interventions will help those groups of New Zealanders. But social investment is broader than just that portfolio. It's also about what we do in education. It's mm. about what we do in the health system. It's about what we do uh, in the law and order area. So all of our ministers... Uh, will be tasked with taking a social investment mindset. Have you heard from the Productivity Commission since Friday? I haven't. Would you expect to? I wouldn't expect to. Um, I do want to um, just show some compassion, which is it must be hard to read in a coalition agreement that mm. the organisation you're part of is being uh, disestablished. Um, obviously, that's part of the ACT agreement that will free up some resources and allow them to set up the Ministry for Regulation, which will support uh, David Seymour and his red tape cutting work. But it wasn't anything that was actually campaigned on, was it? No, I don't, I don't think it was, but we, I think, have a very strong mandate from New Zealanders to look mm. across public services to identify those that aren't adding maximum value and to ensure those resources are redeployed. I know you've been asked this already. I know you were asked this in the lead-up to the campaign. I'm hoping you're going to give us a bit more specificity than you have in the past. What are we looking like in terms of job losses across the public sector at the moment? Because you identified cuts of over 6% mm. in the, in the run-up to the election, but there was no specificity in that deal with ACT. Well, uh, what we now need to do is create a programme of savings reduction. We inherit unfinished work from the outgoing government who said they'd do baseline reviews but haven't actually identified where all of those savings will come from. We then have our programme of reducing some of the back office bureaucracy mm -hmm. and reducing consultancy and contracting spend. We'll bring that together. We'll set targets for individual agencies. And what our agreement with ACT says is when we're setting those targets, mm. we'll be informed by looking at the data to say, well, there's the agency that's really grown its head count, mm. so where you would expect that there would be more reductions. But I still don't have a head count target. Uh, that's not what I'm targeting. Mm. What I'm targeting is long-term sustainable savings so that we can have a much tidier set of government books. Good luck for the next few weeks. Thank, Thank you for your time. The soon-to-be finance minister, I think that's what we have to call you, uh, finance minister-elect <laughs> until tomorrow at the very least, Nicola Willis. After the break on Q&A, the soonish-to-be deputy prime minister, David Seymour, on the deal and his immediate plans in government.
Hokimai, welcome back to Q&A. Act leader David Seymour is set to become the Minister for Regulation before taking the reins as Deputy Prime Minister in the second half of this parliamentary term. He's with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Jack. Let's start off by talking about the negotiations. At what point in the negotiation process did you see New Zealand first steal? Um, it must have been around about a week ago that we sat down, or we, although we'd had preliminary discussions about some of the details that we were each negotiating with National and uh, which we'd support. So it's probably a, a couple of weeks uh, that we've been uh, together on the basic, on the various uh, details. So, so did you and New Zealand First each have an opportunity to block things that the other party wanted in their respective deals with National? Um, look, I think both of us entered into our negotiations and the Nats uh, conscious of the fact that ultimately we would have to form a government with three parties that supported one agenda. Mm. Um, so I'm sure that there were probably things that uh, they may have thought, well, you know, that's going to be hard to get past Act and vice versa, and that's why we've got you know, a pretty coherent uh, agenda that I think all parties can support for three years, which was always the goal. I'm sure many have noted the irony in introducing a new minister responsible for cutting government regulations. How do you see that job working? Well, first of all, if you compare it with finance, the government has a supply of money, uh, the money that it taxes off people and the quality of the spending, mm. that has a massive impact on New Zealand's wellbeing. But you've got to have somebody in government who has that role. Um, however, I would argue that regulation making rules about how people can use the property uh, that, that hasn't already been taxed or owned by the government is also having a massive impact on our productivity. It's people that you talk to who say, I spend more time getting permission to build something than actually do it. It's teachers who say, all I wanted to do was help kids and all I actually do is tick boxes for the MOE. It's people in finance who make similar complaints and you name it, it goes on farming, etc. Um, our view is that the government needs somebody who is actually taking a lead on what rules are necessary, because some are, mm. um, what do good ones look like, if we you know, define the problem we're trying to solve, if we weighed up the costs and benefits of the rule, if we identified if there might have been a better way to do it. So ultimately that supply of rulemaking that the government imposes uh, on people is better. And you know, this is critical for productivity, because when you have bad rules, number one, it costs more to do stuff. Mm. Number two, people just say, oh, it's too hard, I won't do it. And number three, in the long term, Kids grow up in a culture where too many people have said, ah, I won't do it. Uh, and so we believe that we have this can-do Kiwi attitude, but the truth is we're just terrified of filling in boxes all the time. And so we've got to change our culture. We've got to raise productivity. We've got to understand what good rulemaking uh, requires. And just as you know, the, the government has a, a Treasury and a Minister of Finance for spending, I, I think it needs something equivalent to that uh, for regulating. So, so talk to us how you see that working in terms of your relationship with other ministers, because essentially you are going into their portfolio areas, right, and trying to highlight areas where you think that things are overly regulated. How do you see that tension working? Uh, well, I don't see it as tension. I see it as very constructive because I don't think there'll be any minister in this government who says, I want to make bad regulations, make people's lives harder and slow down New Zealand's productivity growth so we're all poorer. Um, uh, we see it as how can we show what are you know, good ways to make rules, what are some rules that they may have inherited mm. from previous ministers that actually you wouldn't do it again that way um, and how can we ensure that we achieve the policy objectives so everyone mm. gets on well, that conflicts between people and conflicts between people's property are mitigated, um, but we don't spend more time filling out forms than actually doing the business. Will the Minister for Regulation ever be advocating for more regulation? Well, there are actually times when regulation is very good. For example, 
Um, you know, if we had no rules around fishing, everyone would go out and catch all the fish this season and next season wonder why, why we didn't be yeah. a bit more careful. Um, so that's a really good uh, example. Uh, if you think about the kinds of regulations around crime, uh, you know, we have a lot of strict rules around mm. crime because if we didn't, uh, you know, it would be survival of the fittest and we wouldn't have the, the society we do. Um, so there are environmental regulations, there's crime, there's, there's quite a number once you start going into it uh, where it is actually necessary. Sure, you're, you're not going to escape all of them. But, no. but my, So would you, would you advocate for in, uh, increasing regulation at any point? Um, there will sometimes be times when you're actually going to say, uh, you know, that th there's a market failure. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that um, is that when everyone does their best, the result for all is actually worse. The fishing is the, mm. is the classic example of that. Um, and so we might say, well, actually, you know what? Making a rule here would allow everyone to end up better off. But I suspect, given the way things have gone for the last few decades, yeah. there's a lot more bad regulation that needs to be got rid of uh, than good regulation that needs to be introduced at this point. No specificity in the deal as to the number of job cuts, the total number mm. in the public service. What's your expectation? Well, if you see in the agreement between ACT and National, um, there is uh, some wording around uh, there around starting with the amount of people um, in 2017, mm. uh, but then we would adjust that. For example, in education, you'd be looking at, well, there's a lot more students than there were in 2017, mm. so you've got to allow for that. Um, you know, in <clears throat> police, there's obviously a lot more people to police. Um, so you know, allowing for natural growth uh, you would expect uh, to still reduce quite significantly in many areas uh, the number of people in the back office. I just look at MB, 3,500 yeah. up to 5,800. I look at the Ministry of Education, 2,500 up to 4,400. Uh, and you've got to ask yourself, are we getting a proportionately better deal for having done so, that? So, so again, specificity around numbers, what would be a ballpark total figure, do you think? Well, I think if you take the absolute raw approach of going back to 2017, mm -hmm. uh, then you get 15,000 yeah, people. And you adjust it service. as per But your then you start to do all of those adjustments uh, and you take about a third of that off straight away. Um, and inevitably, there's going to be special cases where we say, well, we want mm -hmm. the government to do more or whatever. So, you know, your 15,000 is your absolute top. Yep. And then you know you're going to come down. Okay, so you take off a third, say, to 10,000, mm. and then you allow for a few thousand after that, say. So would, would 8,000 be a ballpark sort of figure, do you think? Well, that's not a bad ballpark, but, I mean, Jack, bear in mind, mm. uh, we're now just having a bit of a game of working out what that looks like. Well, you've, had, actual, you, you've been working... Yeah. I mean, you've been talking through all of this mm. detail, presumably, in the in the coalition negotiations, so I just want to get a really good yeah. steer. Well, I mean, yes, we have, but we've been talking about it as a matter of principle. Mm. Um, we haven't been talking about it with the amount of advice that you can get uh, from each chief executive, uh, mm. from the Treasury... Uh, and all of the other advisors in government that can tell you more about the specifics. So yeah. we can sit here and, as you say, ballpark it, um, but, and we've done that, but I wouldn't want to stand by that before you've seen exactly what the numbers are in each department and, the, and also the changes in population or whatever is relevant uh, will, to that department. There will be no referendum at this stage on the treaty principles, but National will support a bill based on your mm. policy through to select committee. Mm. What do you need to convince Christopher Luxon and his colleagues about? Well, I think people need to see that this is actually a positive exercise. It's something that um, will enhance the mana of the treaty. The fact that we understand the treaty today through a lens back to 1840, we call the principles, and yet 
that lens, those principles, have never been properly defined uh, in accordance with uh, de democratic processes, been defined by the courts, mm. been defined by the Waitangi Tribunal, the public services had a go, um, but it's never been done democratically on behalf of the people in the House of Representatives. So we have started that process. I believe it will be positive. There's other people who want to make it a negative mm. thing. That's fine. I think we will win that argument and our coalition partners will say, well, hang on a minute. This is worth taking for further forward. Okay, so so they're committed to support it up to select committee stage. Then it goes to the second reading. Mm. At that point, MPs will be whipped, right? Mm. So you expect the MPs to, to vote along party lines? Uh, we would expect that, yeah. Right. So essentially, if Nationals' leadership decides, actually, we're not going to support this, mm. that'll be it. At that stage. Well, it might be. I mean, you might decide that you don't mm. want to vote on it right now. But like I say, I think that this issue is more important mm. than making it a matter of politics and horse trading. It really is a question of what does our founding document mean? Does it mean that we are divided into tangata whenua and tangata tiriti, two peoples apart? Or does it mean that we are citizens of New Zealand with mm. the same rights and duties or natikanga katoa ritetahi as the treaty itself says? This is a big question. It hasn't been debated properly in New Zealand, it now will be, and I believe it will have a positive uh, tone to it that will allow it uh, to continue on further. Will rewriting the Firearms Act increase access to law-abiding gun owners, for law-abiding gun owners, to MSSRs? Um, well, first of all, I think that whole term is something that will disappear. It was always a concoction that didn't accurately describe any type of firearm. Second of all, what we're talking about is going to a graduated system. Mm. So if you look at what happened in, with our nation's tragedy in Christchurch, um, you know, a guy got off the plane, got his licence, bought a, a powerful AR-15, on his first, on his A category licence. Mm. That should never have been no. allowed. What we propose is that you have a, a period of graduations, not unlike the way you get your driver's licence now, but over a longer time period. So you get your first licence. If you have a good record at the end of that, you can get a, go to graduate to a higher licence right. and so on. Um, will that allow people uh, to have more powerful firearms? Over time, yes. Um, but, of course, as we've had uh, discussion in this, yeah. at this table before, um, you've got to remember there's about 6,000 people who can have centrefire semi-automatic firearms now. Um, I don't imagine that that will change greatly. So what would be the time period under the, the new rules and the new firearm act, uh, Firearms Act? What would be the time period between getting your very first licence mm. and being able to access an AR-15-style rifle? Well, that would depend on whether you had uh, a special purpose uh, for having one. So uh, potentially never, and it's not an easy answer to give because to some extent you would be grandfathering in uh, experience and time with a licence as a fit and proper person prior to this new law. Right. Um, so, so at what would be the earliest amount of time mm. if, if you meet, meet all of the qualifications? Well, if you're, if you're somebody that has one of those firearms right now, uh, then you would continue to have one. Sure, mm. but, but if, if you're someone who has no firearms licence, to mm. go, what would be the, the shortest period of time between mm. going from so having you, no firearms licence to you, being able to if access you, If you'd like never that. had one before, yeah. um, I don't want to answer that because it's something that is still being worked through and will have to be worked through as a matter of government policy. But in the Cole McKee's draft legislation prior to the election. Uh, I believe there was around about five years of graduation before you got to the top level. Farmac, you will update the model to mm. make sure its decisions mm. take patient voices into account. What, mm. what, does that, what does that mean? 
Well, first of all, I think if you look at the way that Pharmac has operated, there's been a siege mentality. You've seen those emails. Whenever I've had people, literally patient voice Aotearoa or other um, organisations that advocate for patients, uh, they have traditionally found it very difficult to get a hearing. However, patients can often give quite valuable information about how the funding of a pharmaceutical or treatment mm. or device would help them. Um, and often that information is actually quite useful for Pharmax decision making overseas. For example, in the UK, it's quite normal mm. um, to listen to patients a lot more because they have valuable information. It doesn't mean they get to make the decision because, mm. of course, they would like everything mm. funded and, and that you can understand that. Um, but the, the Pharmac has the role of, of maximising the value from limited money. So we would see a lot more listening along the lines of the, how they've done it in the UK. You give more power to lobbyists, right? Uh, no, I don't think so. But I think more access. Of, I mean, because a lot of lo lobbyists and, and a lot of pharmaceutical companies support these patient groups, right, mm. financially? Um, there's, been some, there's been some argument about that. Um, and what's, I know your, what's your view? Um, my view is that there's actually not as much crossover as some people have accused them of. I know there's been accusations from within Pharmac uh, of that. My view is that lobbying in itself is not a bad thing, mm. so long as you are able to have cards on the table and understand uh, whether or not the person is a good faith actor. And I'll give you one example. Um, in my career, I've been lobbied by uh, electricity network operators. Mm. Now, you know, it's actually quite useful, to, even as an electrical engineer, yeah. to be able to understand how those work. So getting information... Sure, but pharmaceutical getting, getting companies in, supporting mm, a, a patient voice group mm, and that patient voice group now having greater access to Pharmac and Pharmac being instructed to listen to the patient voice group, that's a straight line. No, it's not, because there's a big difference between being able to garner information mm. and give someone influence in a decision making. So when you say that they're ordered to listen to them, yes, it, it might well sound a bit like that. However, that doesn't mean that they're required to give effect mm. to the feedback from those groups. So they've got to listen so to them, a, they don't have to act necessarily. Absolutely, yeah. because ultimately, while patient groups have valuable information, Obviously, patient groups quite understandably would like a lot more things yeah. to be funded, but Pharmac has a different job, which is maximising the value for the limited taxpayer dollars they have. Your deal says that Pharmac will have a productivity focus. Mm. So does that mean that in Pharmac's assessment, the life of someone who can work is more valuable than the life of someone who cannot work? Uh, no, it doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is that if funding a pharmaceutical uh, would actually mean that a person, for example, didn't need more operations that can cost mm. the healthcare system elsewhere, that frees up money. So it's almost like getting something for free from the taxpayer's point of view. Similarly, uh, if funding a pharmaceutical meant that a person uh, would go and work and pay tax and increase the amount of money available for funding all pharmaceuticals, then again, you know, that also means that more people can have more. Uh, so it's not the case that their life is more or less valuable. Uh, it's a question of how do we make sure for the limited taxpayer dollars that we have that we can fund as many pharmaceuticals as possible and make all lives more valuable. The Reserve Bank, you want the bank's remit to specify time targets for reducing inflation. What should those targets be or are they staggered? 
Um, well, first of all, there could be multiple staggered targets. In the past, when specific timeframes for reducing inflation mm. were given, uh, there was just one target. So I think if I recall, the very first policy targets agreement back in 1990 said get inflation down between 0 to 2% by mm. the third quarter of 1992 uh, or you will be fired. Mm. And the Reserve Bank governor at that time achieved that target. Um, since that time, we've started saying things like, oh, we'll get it down in the medium mm. term. Now, I asked Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister what that meant. She didn't know. So, OK, so what, what will it mean under the under the deal? Under the, negotiation, under the negotiated agreement between ACT and National, uh, it means that the Finance Minister you've just spoken to um, will, at the very least, investigate whether it might be better um, to go back to specific targeting. Now, we're quite open to the possibility that they'll come back with good arguments about why uh, mm. that shouldn't happen, but these are the kinds of things that need to be investigated. And, and just to be totally clear, when you say specific targeting, do you have one target or do you support a staggered target approach? Well, again, there might be good reasons to do either, but the thing is right now you've got no specific target. Mm. Uh, having one or multiple specific targets uh, would be a lot better than just saying get Get, get the cost of living under control at mm. some point in the medium term. That's why people are hurting so much right now, because as a country, we've totally taken mm. our eye off the ball on inflation targeting. Last question. All tertiary institutions receiving government funding will have to commit to a free speech policy. What will that policy be? Well, in short, it would say that people have a right to express an opinion and that you cannot uh, say that just because you've suffered emotional harm another person's right to speak is lost. Mm -hmm. You cannot say that a person is not able to come onto a campus and express a view uh, purely because you feel that it will harm your feelings. You know, Jack, I think one of the bigger meta problems that we have as a society right now is that people are so worried about being offended. People are so worried about anything going wrong, that we become totally risk-averse, we become totally fragile, and we fail to solve the very real problems, which actually leads to greater harm in the long term. Thank you very much for your time. Congratulations Thank on your Thank you very much. Act Leader David Seymour, soon to be the Minister for Revenue. Not for Revenue. For regulation. <laughs> regulation. <laughs> revenue as well, maybe, one day. Who knows? Um, if you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it on Y. These are our main platforms. You can find us on email. You can contact us via X or Facebook. Next, weather warnings have been in place overnight for the North Island's battered east coast. What will the new government and two new local MPs mean for the Cyclone Gabrielle recovery? Twenty twenty three has been such a big year, it is possible to forget it began with Cyclone Hail and then Cyclone Gabrielle. When Gabrielle hit, causing so much loss and damage, the Gisborne Tide Afati region had two senior MPs, both in Parliament, Mika Faitiri in Ikaroa Rafati and Kiritapu Allen in the East Coast electorate. Both are now gone from Parliament. That leaves a region in desperate need of powerful representation with two new MPs, Labour's Kushla Tangaeri Manuel and National's Dana Kirkpatrick. They're new, but they are determined to persuade the incoming government to look east. John Campbell with the politics of keeping Tairawhiti on the map. One hundred and fifty k northeast of Gisborne, in the space and light where the Waiapu River meets the Pacific, is Rangitukia. And this is Te Uranga o Te Ra. You know, we're saying, I suppose, where the sun rises, this is where the sun rises. This is um, Maimarai, Hinepare. 
the whare is named for the whole Tairawhiti region, but of course the complex is named after our, um, our tipuna hinepare, and this is where I spent a good majority of my childhood. After Gabriel, the election was another flood of sorts. The herd has changed. Six of the seven Māori electorates are now held by Te Pāti Māori. Kushla Tangairi Manuel is the only Labour MP left, and she's new. Her job is to be a voice for the place she's from, where her dad was church minister. And how long did he stay at the church for? Oh, till he died. He would have done his own funeral if he had. <laughs> The church made it here, politicians visit less often. The challenge, as in all small, remote places, is being seen. When I was campaigning, the clear message from people was that they want someone that's going to be visible, that's going to show up, that uh, makes them feel seen and heard. From Rangitokia to Kirkpatrick Road, yes, named after the new National MP's family, Dana Kirkpatrick is Te Aitanga Amahaki on one side, Pākehā on the other, Tairāwhiti on both. Right, we're good? We are so good. <laughs> Great. Uh, congratulations on being the new MP for the East Coast. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's exciting. Wednesday morning in downtown Gisborne, we met National's new MP at Verve Café on the main drag. Coffee, treats, breakfast and a message that has real meaning in a place so often cut off from the world. People here just want the cyclone recovery work to finish. I think if there's one thing over and above everything that everybody talks to me about, it's roading and it's resilient, reliable roading because that's our, that's our game changer. That's the thing that makes a difference. People aren't coming here. Um, tourists aren't coming, people aren't coming because they can't get here and there's no guarantee they'll get home again. I mean, just today, roads closed again. Go or not. This was State Highway 35 last week as we drove between Rangitokia and Gisborne. This was an inland road on a previous trip, completely gone, swallowed. This was State Highway 2 south for many weeks, closed, you betcha. Or the road north of Tolliga Bay, gone for weeks. Or State Highway 2 in both Feb and June, this time north of Gisborne. Or back to last week, the endless repairs. Some repaired roads have reflooded and needed new repairs. Why? Well, look right, here, towards the river. If we really slow this shot down, we can see how the road on the right is disappearing. And every time the river floods, it eats more road, endlessly. I don't want us, after every rain event, to start cleaning up. What I want us to do is do one job properly, build in that resilience. So uh, it's a big, big issue, uh, and I think, and an expensive one, right? Because we can't just keep building roads and bridges how we've built them for the last however many hundred years, because they're not working anymore. Look at the electorate Dana Kirkpatrick represents. Heading north, there are just two roads out. And State Highway 35 around the coast is beautiful, but not practical, and very long. Which leaves State Highway 2, that's it. And when it's closed, Gisborne is effectively cut off from easy access to roughly half the country's population. Imagine that if your business is fresh. 
We're over 50% of the broccoli business. You talk salads, we're currently about 40% of the salad business. You talk lettuce and bags, you know, we're, we're in the 90s. The question no one's yet answered is how much will it really cost to build infrastructure that survives this? In May, former Cabinet Minister Hekia Parata described the scale of the coast's crisis in just nine words. An environmental disaster is unfolding there in plain sight. What we do know is, as we've, through this project, is that we've been given $37 million, but our team have gone through and scoped the, the, all the networks that are affected by water debris, and there's actually about um, $117 million that we need. And so there's obvious shortfall. We didn't know at the time, we know now. And so those will be further discussions that we'll bring up with the government. So an $80 million shortfall, and one source told me that feels optimistic. And then the cost of future-proofing, because climate change means more frequent weather extremes. And I know our discussions also with the new government will be how we get back on our feet, how we build in a lot of resilience so we can come to our full potential here in the centre of the universe. I've met with most of the mayors in this community and I say, you're not going to get everything you asked for, so you need to be really clear about what makes the difference, what the game changes are. The game changes may be community-led. This is the Tiarai River. It's being cleaned up in a way that will endure. Debris removed, poplars felled and cleared. Eventually, natives will be planted. And it's a joint effort between the Gisborne District Council and Rongo Fakata. And you are Rongo Fakata, right? I am Rongo Fakata. This, this hour is especially special to me. So what's it like to be cleaning it up? Oh, feels great. Yeah, feels great. I think my grandmother will be proud. Pride. You can see here what they're achieving with it. This is where they've cleaned. When it's finished, it will be a model for what's possible right along the coast. We need action. You know, we, we've had support. You know, we can't say we haven't had support. But what we really need is to be the designers before the deliverers. Both the region's new MPs are determined to tell the story of this place. The roads, the slash still in the hills and countless sites. One day this will all come down, as this all did. It can't keep happening, can it? Because, you know, if you put it up in, in the big scheme of things, uh, you might think, well, it's a low population, it's, you know, there's isolated communities, there's not that many people at the end of some of these roads. But that's not, that's not good enough. Um, people need to survive, people's livelihoods are at stake. And their well-being is being affected as a result. It's ten months now since we shot this footage, a river turned to wood. And it still doesn't quite compute that there could be so much wood that we'd allowed so much debris to be left behind and then to flood. And the hills are full of more of it. And cleaning that up will cost. But not doing it will cost so much more. In the end, if you get the funding you need and you get to do the mahi that you hope to do, what will this hour be like in the end? How, 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 how do you hope it will look? It'll be clean. It'll have a permanent um, native riparian corridor all along the length of it. Um, you know, the kids will be able to swim in it, it'll be full of fish. Um, something that we can all feel proud to hand on to our future generations. That really would be magic, wouldn't it? It'd be amazing. 
John Campbell in tired Afati. After the break, COP28, the latest UN climate conference is set to begin this week, but just wait until you hear where this year's event is being held. The 2023 UN Climate Conference is set to kick off this week in one of the world's largest oil-producing nations. COP28 UAE will be held in Dubai and journalist Rod Oram will be attending. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. Does holding the climate conference in a massive oil-producing nation devalue the forum? I think it's going to intensify the forum because, we're, for example, we've got the EU, all of the nations in the European Union, uh, making a declaration which they're taking to COP about the phasing out of fossil fuels. So this is really bringing the issues to a head. And of all the uh, fossil fuel countries that could be hosting COP, uh, the UAE is by far the most broad-minded. So in Dubai, you have a huge trading city, a diversified economy, a lot of high tech. Mm. And, and so of all the fossil fuel producers, I think the UAE is probably the best one in that sense yeah. to host a <laughs> conference like this. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So in interviews this year on Q&A, both James Greenwick and Niwa's Sam Dean have told us they think that 1.5 degrees of heating, keeping global warming below that level, is gone as a target. They think it's unlikely to be achieved. Is that the consensus within the scientific community? Pretty much so. Um, just the Saturday before yesterday, eight days ago, was the first time the average temperature across the surface of the planet was uh, two degrees above the norm. That was just one day, so, but we've already broken through that barrier. Mm. One and a half degrees would be incredibly difficult to achieve because there is now so much momentum mm. from nature, from climate, um, uh, for change. However, if we look at how drastic the emissions reductions have to be to stand any chance of getting as close as possible to one and a half degrees, so we need to still have that as a tether and trying to get as close as possible. If you look across every sector in the economy, you can make the case that this could be done if we got our act together, if there was the commitment, if there was the investment. So this COP is going to be the most consequential mm. in the 28 held so far, 28 years, and um, because it's actually about that kind of action and commitment. The uh, UN emissions gap report this week said emissions would need to be cut by 42% by 2030 in order to keep global warming under the 1.5 degree target. I mean, there are a lot of ifs in your, in your um, explainer there. That, that is a huge, huge shift. It is, but... Um I don't want to trade reports with you, but the International <laughs> Energy Agency this week um, was delivering its pre-COP report. Um, and it was laying out from an energy point of view mm. about how to achieve that level of cuts. And they are immensely experienced and very credible organisation. And they lay out how that can be done. But it has to start um, with a massive determination from the fossil fuel industry itself that it's going to be a part of that rapid emissions reduction. And that commitment is just not there. Food and agricultural systems are set to be a focus at this year's COP. What are the implications for New Zealand? Because uh, food and land use change and farming are in aggregate the largest driver of um, emissions and climate change. Um, it's really important that COP focuses on it. This is the first COP uh, that has a particular food focus. And the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization will be delivering a roadmap of how to get um, food and farming to one and a half degrees 
in emissions terms. That's a radical reinvention of farming. Mm -hmm. And so the huge challenge for us is that our farmers are sitting here saying that, look, we're already the best in the world in terms of low emissions. Therefore, it's up to other farmers to catch up with us. But they are completely missing the point. It's not about slightly tuning up existing farming systems. It's about radical change. And, and so food and farming is going off in a different direction. And we would have to scramble really hard to make sure pastoral farming still has a role in that. And the only way that works is if we can prove the value of ruminant animals in ecosystem terms, i.e. helping uh, biodiversity and regeneration, and that you can do that. But the emissions have to get to as close as possible to zero as fast as possible. Mm. And again, we're not focusing on that here because we're trying to, we're seeking um, methane inhibitors and, and, and we're trying to clean up what's coming out the tailpipe, if I can borrow from the car industry. But the car industry realized they couldn't do that with fossil fuels, mm. so they switched to a different fuel, um, to EVs. So agriculture's got to think about how do you feed these animals very differently mm. and farm them very differently, because we know that that actually reduces emissions. It gets us going um, on that pathway. Does New Zealand go into these talks with a credibility problem? Um, Yes and no. We have a terrific reputation for being um, um, uh, very constructive in trying to find solutions. Um, but we are laggards in terms of the uh, uh, goals we've set ourselves, um, but even worse in terms of how little we're actually reducing emissions. Mm. So we're really struggling from that point of view. We're about to blow our credibility in another way, though. We were one of the early signers to the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance, um, but the new government is going to reinstate state of offshore oil and gas exploration, which makes no economic sense because nobody has ever found anything out there that they want to develop. All the development has been offshore and onshore Taranaki. And you can still do that. You can still explore there. I would bet a small sum of money with almost anybody um, that even if the National Party, the national-led government, um, does re uh, allow offshore oil and gas exploration, nobody will come because there are far better, cheaper, more accessible places um, to, to drill for oil and gas mm. than New Zealand. So if we um, back away from that, if we reverse that decision, mm. that would be a serious blow for our, um, our uh, credentials in terms of uh, climate and energy. And what about carbon offsets? We've recently seen a deal uh, by which a Dubai-based company bought about 20% of Zimbabwe's total land mass for use as carbon offsets. To what extent is the role and credibility of those kinds of offsets going to feature in these talks? Uh, very high. Um, so uh, this has been a pretty torrid year for offsets, um, both in the voluntary market but also um, in the regulated market, because they've got to be completely credible. Mm. There are a few countries around, um, Switzerland being the best example, um, that go into very intentional um, and mutually beneficial arrangements with other countries to um, buy their offsets. We've built that into our emission strategy, but we've done no work on that or minimal work. Um, and so our, our new government is going to have to get its head around that because we are doing so badly here, we are going to have to buy those offshore credits. But again, for our reputation's sake, we have to make sure that we're partnering very well with other countries so they get great benefits out of it. Not the way Dubai has been doing, is, has launched into this with mm. Zimbabwe. We do not want to be a Dubai-Zimbabwe relationship um, in the, out there in the international community. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck. My pleasure. Thank Look you. Look forward to your work. Rod Oram. Hey, our Q&A. Q&A is back after the break.
Komatu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Just so you know, next week is our final show of 2023. Hei te rā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.